Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, movie fans. This is Mac Bates, and I'm filling in for Betty Jo today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a fun show for you folks. We're celebrating E.T.'s 40th anniversary, and our guest is one of our favorites. It's Canadian film critic Jeff Roberts. Jeff, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters. Hello, Mac. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Uh, let's, let's get the party started. Uh, so uh, we're so glad you could uh, be here with us to talk about this wonderful sci-fi film, this, this classic, really. I have a list of questions, uh, so let's get started. The sure. first question I have for you is, what was Harrison Ford's influence in the making of the film of E.T.? Well, Spielberg was enchanted by Melissa Matheson's adaptation of The Black Stallion from 1979, and he was working uh, at the same time on Raiders of the Lost Ark with uh, Harrison Ford. It just so happens that Harrison Ford was dating Melissa Matheson at the time, and uh, she later went on to become his wife. But uh, Spielberg seized this opportunity to pitch her his idea for E.T., and she shot him down, saying that she uh, found that uh, writing screenplays was too hard and that she was retired from writing and she wasn't going to do it. So Spielberg turned to Harrison Ford and says, your, girf- your, uh, your girlfriend rather turned me down. She doesn't want to write my next movie. So uh, Ford uh, talked to her. This lent, uh, led up to uh, Matheson writing a first draft of the film, which actually became the only draft because I'm Upon reading it, Spielberg thought it was perfectly crafted and that he could film E.T. E. the next morning if he wanted to. So Ford was actually supposed to portray the principal of Elliot's school in the scene that was cut where he would confront him about setting the frogs that were meant to be dissected free. And audiences were only supposed to see Ford from the back and hear his voice. There's an interesting reason for that. Spielberg didn't want any focus on adult characters, and for the film to be from the perspective of children and E.T. identifying and interacting with people his own size and reporting back to his home planet. Now, that's an interesting uh, bit of trivia there that Harrison Ford's then-girlfriend uh, and future spouse, wife, ended up writing the film at Steven Spielberg's bequest. That's uh that's that's some trivia I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, but it's uh it's uh, pretty insightful uh considering his working relationship with Harrison on, on the uh Indiana Jones films, which continues until this day. The uh, uh the next installment is uh due out soon. My uh my next question for you is why why did Steven Spielberg hire a six year old Drew Barrymore for a key role in the film? Well, Drew Barrymore was one of the easiest people to cast in E.T. She had originally auditioned for Poltergeist, which Spielberg had produced, and she auditioned for the role of uh, Carol Ann, which went to the late Heather O'Rourke. When casting E.T., he met her again, and she told him that she didn't want to be an actor and had absolutely no desire to be in his movie. When asked why, Barrymore told him an elaborate story about an imaginary punk rock band that she was the leader of and how she was too busy performing concerts. When she went on and on with this story, 
story, he realized that she would be able to believe that E.T. was real. During filming, when everyone else was on break, Barrymore would stay with the E.T. puppet and continue talking to it. So Spielberg was said to always have puppeteers on hand to manipulate it so that she continue in the interaction and use that to further influence her performance. Interesting. So uh, basically, he did, he did what a lot of directors uh, with children do. He played up to their imagination and, and managed to coax a pretty, pretty convincing, now uh, uh, iconic performance. Yeah. Okay, the next question I have for you is, uh, why was it so hard to find a child actor to play Elliot? Well, Henry Thomas was never meant to portray Elliot. Spielberg spent six months auditioning over a thousand child actors for the role, and he didn't find a single actor who fit his vision. And when he finally did, he made an offer to an actor, who he still won't name, whom he cast only to have that boy's parents balk at the money he was offered, making outrageous demands that ended up with them parting ways. So six weeks prior to shooting, the director had an incredible problem to resolve without having a lead actor. It was then that a friend mentioned Henry Thomas to him, Pitt, having recently worked with him. At the time, Thomas only had two professional credits and no agent and had no idea what the film was about prior to the audition, where he ended up reading the synopsis. He was asked to do the scene where NASA tries to take E.T. away and nailed it because he made Spielberg and others in the room cry, so he was given the role on the spot. I remember actually seeing footage from that uh, that test uh, that test shoot of that particular scene, that audition uh, reel, and it, yeah, he was he was quite quite powerful in that. And I just I can't help but think, just what what would you what would you even imagine the parents of that actor who who balked at at, at uh, them accepting the uh, the role? Just imagine what they must be going through all these years later, thinking, wow, we we really messed up there. <laughs> you gotta wonder. Like, yeah, we yeah. we pretty much passed on one of the greatest sci-fi films. Just well, not even just sci-fi. Just one of the greatest films of all time. Because you know, of greed. It's uh, that's that's just that's pretty uh, pretty funny to hear. Um, how did how did Spielberg work with Henry Thomas? Well, Spielberg, Spielberg never thought of uh, Thomas as a child actor, but rather as someone who thought and understood things about his character and performance that a seasoned adult actor would. Uh, Spielberg is quoted in a 1982 interview with Premier Magazine where he states, I was blown away by this nine-year-old. Then I came to realize that he's an adult actor, not a nine-year-old. He's a very controlled, methodical performer who measures what he does and feels that he feels what he does, and yet broadcast it in a totally subtle way. His performance is so controlled, unlike most kid performers, who seem to be giving you 100% on every shot. Henry's performance is just a breadcrumb at a time, but he takes you in a wonderful direction to a very, very rousing catharsis. He's just a one-in-a-lifetime kid. Mm, so he was a nuanced actor, even as a child. That's, that's an interesting take on Henry Thomas. You know, you've certainly, if you've been able to see any of his uh, additional work from, you know, his uh, his younger years and and uh, up until now, uh, yeah, he is a pretty pretty uh, nuanced actor. But it's interesting to know that he was like that even as a, a young boy. Uh, how how was the actor who fit into E.T.'s costume chosen? So one of the problems Spielberg had was figuring out how E.T. was going to move without audiences thinking that was an actor in a suit. Now, he wasn't keen on doing that. Producer Kathleen Kennedy then reached out to Spielberg's lawyer, who had a four-year-old daughter actually named Rachel that they brought into the designer of E.T.'s studio and put her in the suit. 
she went absolutely nuts when I put E.T.'s head on her and flailed around, which uh, sold him on having an actor in the suit after they showed him the video of this. There were actually three actors that fit into E.T.'s suit, but it was an actor named Matthew Dermott who was born without legs that was chosen because he used his hands to walk. According to Wikipedia, he was in every scene uh, involving E.T. falling down, and especially the one where he's getting drunk that required the alien to fall over. And when it came to E.T.'s hands, that was done by an actual mime named Caprice Roth. Uh, so that's why all E.T.'s hand movements look uh, realistic. And, you know, there was an interesting bit of trivia behind E.T.'s voice. Uh, some people are aware of this, and I would imagine that uh, uh, just as many probably aren't, but I'm uh, happy to uh, share this uh, very interesting bit of trivia. Deborah Winger, the Oscar-nominated actor who is best known for her turns in Urban Cowboy and in Officer and the Gentleman, as well as Terms of Endearment, among other uh, films, she actually was, uh, her voice was used in order to create E.T.'s voice. And I've heard about this uh, initially uh, years ago, and you know, whenever it's brought up, people are kind of aghast or like, "Really? That 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 was? You know, her her voice was used in order to create ET's voice." And um, it, much much to a lot of people's surprise, you know, when it when it's been revealed that that was the case, people just they they thought it was you know an actual uh, you know uh, somebody other than uh, a name a name actor at that time because she was fairly large, you know, back in uh, back in the early early to mid '80s. So uh, I always thought that was a very interesting bit of trivia based on uh, how how she was involved in that film, and she actually uh, has a a brief cameo. In the film, she's in costume, so you don't even know it's her. But uh, if you go to IMDb or Wikipedia, you can find out more about uh, what she what she was dressed as and how she was uh, you know how she was featured in the film. Um, also, uh, have a, an additional question: uh, How did the making of ET change Steven Spielberg's life? When you think about it, Elliot and Spielberg are one and the same. Spielberg has said that he always wanted to craft a film about a disenfranchised and lonely boy and his relationship with his siblings and dealing with the divorce of his parents and how it impacted him for the rest of his life. Spielberg says that E.T. was on his mind for 15 to 20 years uh, before, subconsciously as a fantasy to make him feel less lonely. The director felt that he was making a movie with a Disney feel to it that would only appeal to children, and he had no idea that E.T. would become a global phenomenon that would grow over $970 million and be nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture. He never thought of himself as father material either, but working with Barrymore, Thomas, and other child actors uh, so intently led to him having a connection that he never had with children, and he eventually had uh, seven of his own himself. Oh, that is interesting. So the film itself made him reevaluate his whole his whole viewpoint on, on marriage as well as uh, f fatherhood. I, I, have, I was not aware of that. Um, and and the, I know in the film, the film itself was made for $10.5 million. And uh, how much did you say went on the gross? $970 million. And is that is that total box office haul, or is that specifically well, from that's its initial release in that right now, according to Wikipedia. Okay. So it might be even more. Uh, yeah, because I know uh, the film was initially released in June of 82, and then it was re-released in 85, and I was able to, uh, lucky enough to see see um, the film in, in both years. And then it was re-released, I believe, in 2002? 
Am That's I right? right. With, the, uh, okay. with the special edition on uh, on video um, that actually got pulled not uh, long after because there was a lot of controversy about him changing uh, scenes because he took out the uh, the guns that the feds had at the the, near the end when they were chasing the kids oh, and yeah. uh, replaced it with walkie-talkies and made the, the scene where we first see uh, E.T. In, in the field a lot uh, longer and he also changed um, the lights on the on the uh, on E.T.'s spaceship which uh, not a lot of people liked and uh, this according to Spielberg was the only time he'd ever go back in and correct things in a film uh, digitally, and he'd leave everything else that he's worked on alone. Mm, okay. So uh, yeah, even though uh, I'm fairly sure it was well well re- well received in certain quarters, but he just artistically speaking, he wasn't. And, and he did uh, add. Um, he did add a scene where ET's ET's given a bath in that uh, special edition. So. Um, it was released on video in 2002 with the original 1982 version as well as this one and then uh, more or less quickly pulled and mm. uh, not released again in, um, that, I, uh, in that format. Are there any plans to re-release it uh, this year in, term, in you know, celebration of its 40th anniversary? Have you heard anything? I haven't heard anything about that, but uh, it would be interesting that they did. Okay. Yeah, I would love to see like a IMAX uh, re-release. That that I think that would be uh, a pretty pretty well received, even if you know it's uh, just a limited uh, engagement. I think I think you would get a lot of people to turn out for it. Um, why uh, Columbia Pictures released uh, ET? Uh, well, actually, no, Columbia Pictures did not release ET, and I, they probably wish they had. Why did Columbia Pictures turn down ET? Because I know at the time Spielberg uh, did quite a few uh, films uh, at that at that studio. So Columbia had John Carpenter's Starman in development. Now that film is about an alien that hears the 1977 recording that NASA made that they beamed into space on the Voyager 2 to get aliens to contact Earth. Now in Starman, the character has a spaceship down by missiles and has to take on the form of a dead woman's husband. So Columbia liked E.T., which had similarities, they thought, to Starman, but decided to give back the rights to uh, Spielberg for E.T., who took it to Universal, which loved the script because he already had concept drawings, a clay-busted E.T., and that had already been designed, and they just decided that they loved the film and uh, green-lighted it and got them going on it. And uh, Spielberg had a previous relationship with Universal Studios from uh, other projects that he had made there. Uh, were, were there any um, – I'm assuming that played a role in Universal signing on. Yes, it did, but um, it was more or less because he, everything, he had everything ready for, for E.T., mm-hmm. and uh, Columbia just shot him down once they – they said that they had uh, the Starman in development. I mean, there's been other reasons um, rumored that they, they shut, him down, uh, shut him down, but uh, Spielberg uh, believes that this is the, really the sole reason that uh, Columbia shot it down and he had to, to go with uh, Universal in the that it end. Was too, it was too thematically uh, tied uh, or linked to a Starman, the uh, John Carpenter film, with um, right. Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen who uh, Spielberg uh, worked with on Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what are your three favorite scenes in E.T.? And, and, I'll give a, you know, and please explain why they are. Well, definitely the, um, 
frog dissection scene where uh, Elliot uh, um, is, is in a room where they're, they're going to be dissecting frogs, and they're in a jar with uh, chloroform, and he overturns all of them, making these uh, frogs all over the the uh, classroom floor, and the frogs are jumping out the, the windows. I found that funny, and he's also um, standing on the back of a classmate so that he's level with the girl he always liked so he can get a, a kiss in. And I like that scene because it's very, uh, very funny. Um, the other scene I liked uh, a lot was uh, the scene where where E.T. becomes uh, drunk. And that's um, actually <laughs> quite a, a pivotal thing because it, it establishes that um, when E.T.'s having a problem with something, Elliot also experiences it at well uh, at the same time. So you, you understand that they've got this tele kinetic uh, connection where they both feel what the other one's going through. Oh, yes. And the, uh, the last scene is um, when they, um, when E.T. appears to be dying and uh, Elliot gags him when he comes back to, to life and they end up um, getting the plastic tubing that the house is connected in, onto a, a van and they speed away and um, at, near the um, end of that sequence is when they uh, get into the the air with the with with the, the with the bikes and uh, actually BMX uh, professional uh, stunt riders uh, did that scene and they didn't know too much about what they were getting into when they were doing it and how it was mm. going to play out in the in the film so those are your three favorite scenes okay uh, are there any other uh, scenes in the movie that stand out in particular for you well definitely when he meets um, the adult uh, character called Keys, who's a, a man that uh, explains uh, to Elliot that uh, he's sh- sure glad that Elliot uh, met uh, E.T. before the, the feds did, and that he's always had this uh, fantasy in his, his mind since he was a kid of, uh, of meeting an alien, and now he's got one in, in front of him. And um, that uh, stood out to me as well as... Uh, that uh, E.T. and um, and Elliot were feeling the same things uh, during this uh, the scene, and one was get, being lost, and then the other one was being lost, and, and back and forth. So, so that uh, whole sequence uh, was something that that uh, that I identified with. Oh, I want to touch base a little on John Williams' iconic score. Uh, it's like a lot of his uh, work, you know, namely uh, Star Wars. In Jaws, it's you hear when you hear it, you instantly uh, recognize that you know what film it was from. What does the music contribute, in your opinion, to the film overall? Well, it's, it's instantly uh, recognizable when when you see it, and it. Uh, um, I, I felt that it like heightens what's going what's going on, and um, yeah, along along that that line, I mean, you'll instantly recognize the. The, the music when you when you see the film and it heightens everything in my my opinion. And uh, in terms of the film's performances, how would you how would you uh, rank them in terms of uh, you know uh, overall overall effect in terms of you know who who you think gives the strongest performance uh, of of the central uh, cast? Well, definitely it's um, Thomas because uh, 
they they spent a long time, like I said earlier, like six months trying to find the the right actor, and then the, the, that actor ended up bailing, and they found uh, Henry Thomas, who'd only been in, in two mo- movies, and he just nailed this uh, audition. And you can't, uh, if you didn't know any better, you couldn't uh, think of any other actor uh, portraying Elliot, or that anyone else was uh, under consideration or cast. And then this part going to Henry Thomas, uh, just because they couldn't find someone, and he walks into this audition and and nails it, uh, performing the scene where E.T. is being uh, taken away by by NASA and having to have his um, reaction to that, uh, and that they're going to be taking him to do experiments and to talk to him, and they, he knows that he, that they're lying to him, and that he's, that they're saying that he's going to get E.T. back isn't. So, so definitely, um, the strongest uh, person in the in the film is uh, is uh, Henry Thomas. If they didn't have him as Elliot, I'm not sure uh, how well the the film uh, would have been. Okay, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, other performances in the film, uh, what what are your thoughts on D uh, D Wallace's uh, turn as his mother? I really liked uh, her her turn as uh, as the the mother, um, and um, I, I mean she was really the only adult that you you see in the the film that has a large uh, part in the film because uh, Steven Spielberg didn't want adults in the film to to muck up the the plot because he wanted uh, everything to be from the the kids' perspective and uh, from E.T. interacting with children and thinking that they are the the only ones his size, so he could report back later to his uh, home planet that he's met uh, people his own size and they're actually children, and make the mistake that uh, that the planet is completely uh, populated by children. That was an idea that uh, Matheson and, and Spielberg uh, were working with in, in the back of their mind when they were, were filming the the movie. Uh, speaking of the film, how would you rank it uh, as, as a sci-fi movie? Oh, it's right up there with Star Wars for me. I mean, everybody uh, knows about Star Wars. I mean, there's been so many prequels, sequels, and uh, and you know other uh, shows like on, on Disney Plus. And oh yeah, a lot of offshoots. Yes. Yeah, you instantly recognize the Star Wars, and with E.T., um, that's a movie that I, has identified with people for the past 40 years since it was released in, in 1982. I mean, I still remember the first time I, I saw it, uh, when it was really released in 1985. My parents decided to take me to a small theater in Toronto that doesn't exist anymore called the Cumberland, and they took me to see the movie, and I was really, really enjoying it and, and uh, captivated by it until um, when it got to the point where we thought uh, E.T. was going going to die. So I threw a fit, and they had to take me out of the, the theater onto the street, and then they explained to me that, uh, that E.T., doesn't really die, and that he's the hero of the movie. They'd never kill off the hero, hero of the movie. So they uh, ended up having to take me back into that theater uh, to watch the the movie over again, and right right to the end. And I enjoyed it. And um, I was six years old at the time, and it sounds really funny now, but uh, I I would go home and much like I would write a letter to Santa Claus, I wrote a letter to E.T. and put oh. out. Uh, 
uh, Reese's Pieces for him, thinking <laughs> that uh, I would get to, to meet him because I didn't understand at the time the difference between fiction and, and reality. I was uh, five years old when I saw the film for the first time in June of 1982. I was uh, living in my family, and I were living in Michigan at the time, uh, near the top of the Lower Peninsula and uh, on an Air Force base, and they took me to a nearby theater. I don't exactly remember where, but it was somewhere nearby. And it was the first time I had ever gone to see a movie at the movies. I had never been to the movie theater before that. And I remember it like it happened yesterday because there were a lot of people there. I remember that. A lot of kids, clearly, uh, you know, parents, uh, older siblings. And I, like most kids that age, was scared of the dark. And I recall when the house lights dimmed and uh, they were you know, going to start the film, I, you know, I normally would get frightened in the dark. And for some reason, I wasn't. I was totally invested. I was totally in. I was thrilled to be there. And then the movie started, and, uh, you know, as the as is the case with uh, movies, uh, you know, that, that have a, a an impact on people, certainly certainly this one has over the years. Uh, we, you know, laughed in the same places, you know, yelled in the same places, cried in the same places, and it was just one of those experiences that you'll never forget. It doesn't matter how how uh, old you get or, you know, how long ago it's been, it stays with you. And I truly do believe till this day that um, that's where my love of cinema was born, in that theater in, in Michigan in 1982, in June of 1982. And I, uh, like you, was able to uh, see the film uh, upon its re-release in uh, 1985. By that point, I was out on the East Coast and uh, went to go see it and was excited to see it for a second time. And uh, I, I remember both screenings vividly, and it was just uh, one of those, one of those uh, golden, you know, childhood memories that you that you cherish, in, in both instances. I feel the same exact way about uh, ET. Now it's something that I can always go back and, and watch, and uh, still be uh, enchanted by it, much like yes. I was the first time I saw it. I can completely agree. Uh, it's just it's one of those films that you can just never grow tired of, of watching. You can watch it on repeat, uh, and, and there's always something uh, new or something that you hadn't noticed before. It's it's, it's just one of those films. Um, I was wondering, do you have anything else that you would like to add about ET? We you know have uh, have some time just to kind of uh, you know keep uh, keep discussing it. Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot of. Uh... Uh, product placements in in movies and ET is no different. I mean, you have the the Reese's Pieces and uh, and the Speak and Spell uh, that played a, a big part in the communication uh, radar device ET was trying to build. But there is one product that goes down as infamy as being among the the, the worst um, in the movie, and it was ET video game that Atari, Atari put out for the Atari 2600. And it's known as the absolute worst video game of all time. Really? So what you, yes. <laughs> what you would have to do in the game is uh, is have ET help ET find the various uh, pieces, well, actually free pieces, to uh, build that uh, radar so that he can uh, beam a message to his home planet so they can come and rescue him. So what happened is that uh, Atari uh, had a 
lot of problems getting the the rights to to ET to make a game, no. and, and they were only able to in July of '82, uh, and they had only five weeks to uh, complete the game uh, for for it to be able to be sold at the Christmas. So um, it, it happened to have like the the worst uh, graphics, and uh, game players were confused. Uh, by how to even play the game and collect the pieces, and it turned out to be the biggest failure in video game history. And there's an urban legend uh, about it that uh, that Atari actually uh, went to a, a uh, had their own land, landfill site in New Mexico, where they ended up dumping all the uh, uh, cartridges uh, for ET that uh, they recalled and, and never sold. Oh. So a lot of people thought that this was an urban legend, and uh, it's actually partially true, because they they found a a, a landfill that uh, the manager of our Atari told them was there and confirmed to the Associated Press that had over 728 cartridges, but not all of them ET, but of various uh, uh, video games that they ended up pouring concrete over and paving paving over. So that was one of the things that had uh, happened when it came to uh, to ET that I I found uh, pretty interesting. Do you know how many copies they sold before you know the backlash started? Uh, or you know like a rough not, estimate? I'm not sure what the rough estimate was before the the um, backlash happened, but they're they're kind of uh, crediting this to be being what led to according to Wikipedia, anyways, that led to the um, video game crash in, in 1983. And it's oh. like, uh, it's uh, been this thing that uh, has motivated every single video game developer to put out their best work instead of, uh, you know, settling for 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 what they had or trying to, to meet to a particular deadline to make sure that they had their video games, uh, you know, really working right <laughs> yeah. and not being confusing, yeah. And just to reiterate, how long did they have to uh, put it out, you know, to, to beat a deadline, apparently? Five weeks. Five? Um, oh, well, that explains it. <laughs> 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 that explains it. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure, because, yeah, like five weeks to get a, a game together. Yeah, that's yeah, that would explain why it flopped. Uh, was, was there anything else that uh, you'd like to add about it? Uh, any interesting trivia or, or uh, uh, hot takes? Well, one of the things I, I found interesting is that um, in July 1982, when uh, they they realized, uh, well, actually, um, E.T. ran in theaters for like a year, which is the longest at the time that a, a film had been in theaters. So in July uh, 82, they realized that uh, that E.T. was a huge hit. So Spielberg and uh, Melissa Matheson ended up. Uh, uh, according to Wikipedia and in interviews that I've read, writing a sequel uh, called E.T. Nocturnal Fears. Uh -huh. So that would have uh, Elliot and friends getting kidnapped by evil aliens, and the only alien being E.T. Uh, to contact to come uh, help them. So um, they said that Spielberg uh, didn't... Uh, feel that he wanted to pursue this any further because he felt that it was taken away from the original uh, film. So that was a interesting uh, tidbit that I that I, I found out, and uh, they were going to reveal what E.T.'s uh, real name actually was too. Oh, did they? Did they ever in that particular sequel has that been released? You know that that information uh, about the real name. 
Uh, no, nothing that uh, is con confirmed about the, the real name. And the, the other thing um, is when it came to E.T.'s eyes, uh, they were basing that on, um, on Hemingway, um, Albert Einstein, and uh, Sandberg, who had the, uh, you know, these eyes that showed a, a lot of uh, wisdom and being wise, but also sad at the same. And uh, Spielberg actually had to go out of his way to find the expert, um, like one of the biggest experts that actually uh, built glass eyes so that they could uh, have uh, eyes uh, made for, for E.T. Hmm. Okay. And uh, you said that uh, with with uh, the evolution of uh, the, the character, certainly the way he's uh, depicted on screen, there was a lot of puppetry involved. Yes. Um, there was actually a sequel. Um, I can't remember who commissioned it, but there was a kind of like a sequel uh, commercial where you would see E.T. Uh, coming that coming back with uh, with Elliot at, at, at Christmas, and Elliot having uh, a family of his own, and that uh, commercial aired and uh, at, at Christmas time, and that was uh, more or less. Uh, Kind of a reunion between E.T. and and Elliot uh, in a, in a commercial. So the, oh, how long ago has that been? I vaguely remember that. That would probably be oh, I'm just guessing uh, uh, two to three years ago because it was really uh, really recent, and I, I remember that uh, happening. And uh, can't remember what the product it was for offhand, but uh, that uh, that happened, and it uh, was uh, pretty recent. Uh, um, more or less a couple of years before leading up to this uh, um, the 40th anniversary of E.T. So that was the latest uh, uh, project related to E.T. that had had, uh, had happened. Okay. I'm wondering, have you ever gotten a chance to read Melissa Matheson's script or any of, uh, any of the novelizations? I haven't read her, her script, but I, I read a long time ago the, uh, the movie tie-in book, mm -hmm. Uh, that came out uh, when E.T. was uh, released. But no, I haven't had a chance to, to read her, her script. And now with the, uh, the tie-in book or the novelization, were there any notable differences that you can recall, or was it pretty much a scene-by-scene uh, -scene, um, uh, you know, uh, transcript of what was seen in the film? Uh, it's been a long, long time since I read that. I saw it in uh, elementary school and haven't uh, you know, had the opportunity to read it since. So okay. I couldn't tell you if it was verbatim anymore. <laughs> okay, then. Um, and it, it was, is there anything uh, else that you would like to add about uh, uh, the film or anything related to the film? Uh, no, not really. Those were the uh, the trivia bits that I was able to to, to look up and and, and uh, find out about the about the film. Great. You know, actually, I do have a, an additional question. In terms of, uh, I already asked you about your thoughts about it as a sci-fi film. Were there any films uh, in that genre that you would pair it up with in a double feature? You know, if you would have a, a, a double feature of E.T. with any other movie or movies, which, which would they be? Oh, God. Uh, I would probably have uh, E.T. Um, playing with... Um, with uh, oh geez, um, well Star Wars, uh, uh, definitely um, maybe a Clockwork uh, Orange. Oh, that would be quite yeah. the double deal, <laughs> Clockwork Orange and E.T. Yeah, 
um, probably Jurassic Park because because uh, they're they're similar um, family films and you know about prehistoric uh, dinosaurs interacting with humans and the catastrophe that uh, that uh, ensues from that. I think that would make a, a good uh, a double bill E.T. and Jurassic Park because they're they're both by Spielberg and they both appeal to to uh, families and 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 everyone can can go and see those two movies and and enjoy them. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Jurassic Park, not just because of uh, Spielberg's obvious involvement with both films. Uh, Sir Richard Attenborough is a actor in Jurassic Park, and when um, E.T. was released in 82, uh, he also, Sir Richard Attenborough, also had a film that was released in 1982 called Gandhi, and it was about, you know, it was about a real-life figure. And uh, they were both nominated for Best Picture that year at the Academy Awards, and uh, Gandhi ended up winning. Uh, winning Best Picture, uh, Ben Kingsley won uh, Best Actor for his portrayal of the of the title character, and Sir Richard Attenborough won Best Director over Spielberg, who was nominated for E.T. as well. And years later, apparently, I don't know quite how much later, but uh, sometime later, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough actually went on record as saying that E.T. not only sh- uh, uh, deserved to win, it should have won over his own film. And I just thought it was very classy of him, and, and, and um, uh, certainly uh, not certainly not within the, the the norm for a competitor to give props to a a film that they they uh, beat out or a project or a person that they uh, would uh, go on to uh, uh, victor over. So I just thought that was uh, quite uh, quite classy of him, and it certainly was not something that he had to do, but. The fact that he felt the need to uh, say that, I, I just it, it impressed me. And clearly there were no hard feelings because he was cast in Jurassic Park 11 years later. So uh, I, just, I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was a very interesting bit of trivia because it isn't something that you typically hear about, much less read about, when it comes to uh, those, sort of, uh, those sort of contests. All right. Oh, wait, what, what was that you just said? I said that's practically unheard of. I oh yeah, really heard of people doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It isn't something that uh, is typical, but uh, I just I just thought that stood out. Uh, quite, you know, along with uh, uh, Harrison Ford's connection to the film, I also thought that was, uh, you know, not not something I was immediately aware of. But when it became, uh, you know, when that when that was re- revealed that he was engaged, well, you know, dating the woman who wrote the uh, film and then will later marry her. I thought, oh, well, that, that's an interesting uh, bit of trivia uh, about the about that uh, overall film, too. And, um, I, and I learned something new today regarding Spielberg. I had no clue that E.T. was the film that pretty much uh, sealed the deal for him on, on wanting to pursue uh, a fatherhood. I had I just I just I just never thought about it in that in that vein. Yeah, he 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 uh, said it was the the first time he had ever connected with with children on that level, and he's admitted to being you know a childlike uh, person himself and still being that way. So I, I think that also helped to make ET uh, what it was because he could see these things from a child's uh, perspective. I think that's what really made this film work. And I know everyone who worked on the film uh, that, that I'm, I'm, you know, uh, familiar with, uh, Drew Barrymore, Henry Thomas, D. Wallace Stone, and and so on and so forth. They they've all have uh, 
spoken very highly of their time on that film, and a lot of them, you know, all these years later, are still very much in contact with each other. I know uh, Drew Barrymore and Steven Spielberg have been uh, tight ever since they worked on the film, and he's stayed in contact with uh, other members of the cast and crew as well. As he uh, thought of himself as their protector and someone that would shelter them from, you know, all the elements that they would uh, have on on a set as well as after uh, making the the, the film and, uh, you know, guiding them through through that uh, experience. I know that Henry Thomas, um, even though he's gone on to make uh, other movies, um, really didn't uh, like the fame that came with E.T. because every time he went out, he had to... To, to deal with that, but uh, it was just something that uh, bothered him for a while. To... Well, uh, sorry to say our time is almost up. Thank you so much, Jeff, for uh, being a terrific guest again here today. Uh, thanks also to the folks at BTR for their support as well as uh, all of our listeners. And a big shout-out to Nancy Lombardi and Angela Drake for supporting our show on their, on their own radio shows. Nancy is the host of What's the Buzz right here on BTR every Monday and Friday morning at 10.30 uh, Eastern Time. And Angela hosts a variety of shows on 502 Fallen Angel Network Radio. Fallen Angel Radio. That's it. That's all for now. Be safe, everyone. And, again, thank you so much uh, for coming on and agreeing to do the show and, and talking about E.T. on its 40th anniversary. My pleasure. <laughs>